Amen. Thank you, Brother Dan, for that prayer. We are continuing what we began last week. We're looking at the person of Christ. And I don't know about you, but I do know. I think you agree with me. Jesus is amazing. And I'm not trying to compare myself to Moses in any way. But anytime we approach Christ, we're standing on holy ground. Am I too loud? I sound too loud to me. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, we're standing on holy ground. I don't know that I'll ever fully understand this, this side of heaven. But I know that in Christ, in Jesus, we have one person with two natures. Now remember, our topic is the person of Christ. One person with two natures. One of those natures is human. One nature is divine. And so we can distinguish the two natures, but you can't separate them. Isn't that true? You cannot separate them. And each of those natures retains its own peculiar properties in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we ask this question often uh, to help remind us, but was Jesus God or was he man? Both. Which one was he more of? Equal, okay? The God-man. So, yes, this is a mystery. I think it's a mystery we will never fully understand. But this is the only way that we can begin to account for what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ being at the same time both truly God as well as truly man. Now remember in the incarnation, God became flesh. God became man. I mentioned last week there are just a few things uh, that separate Christianity uh, from the rest of the religions of the world. And by the way, no matter what anybody tells you, not all religions are the same. But there are three, I think, main things that make the Christian faith completely distinct from all other world religions. Number one is the nature of the absolute triune God. No other religion has that. Second of all, is the person and the work of the founder of the faith. And you can talk about any other religion you want to. And no matter who their founder is, they're nowhere near what Christ is. And the third thing that sets us apart from all religions is the way of salvation. Would you agree the most important question we'll ask is how can we be saved? What is the way to God? What is the way to eternal life? If you were to ask different founders of world religions, 
one might claim, tell us, that they have found the way. You follow me, I've found the way. Another might tell us, I have seen the way. Follow me and I'll take you there. Someone else might tell us, God has shown me the way. And yet another might say to us, I can tell you the way. But what did Jesus say about that? I am the way. What an egotist. If you think about it from a human standpoint, what does he mean when he says, I am the way? What, Dan? Dan, you're off on your own minded. <laughs> I'll ask Roberta about that too, all right? But no, that's true. Jesus didn't say, I'll show you the way. I'll tell you the way. I am the way. Marvin? Yeah. Yeah. We got to remember that. Jesus said, I am the way. What a, what a fantastic statement. Now, by the way, if he were speaking as a human only, that'd be her heresy. But he says, I am the way. And like you said there, he didn't say a way. I am the way. He is the only way. Several weeks ago in our study, uh, we looked at the Godhood of Christ. Uh, we began looking a week or two ago at the other aspects of his person uh, as our Lord and Redeemer. And uh, a couple of things I want to remind you of when we think about Christ is, first of all, that he is preexistent, which means what? He always was, okay? There was never a time he did not exist. Now, again, um, we need to remind ourselves that there was never a time that Christ was not God. Uh, we know he's the Son of God. As we study the Trinity, we consider him the second person of the Trinity. Uh, by the way, which of the Trinity, which of the persons of the Trinity are the greatest? That go equal, amen. Do I understand all that? No, I do not. But the Bible teaches that. And so the third, the second person of the Trinity, our Savior Jesus Christ, he did not come to, into existence when he was born of the Virgin Mary. That was in his incarnation. Now, uh, what does the word incarnation mean, by the way? What does it mean? Okay, but more than not more than just being, he became flesh. I, I, for the life of me, I never understood this concept. Chili con carne. Okay, that carne is like it's, it's chili with meat. Now, at my house, if you don't have meat with it, you don't have chili. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but but at any rate, God con carne. God became, I don't want to use the word meat, but he became flesh. He put on flesh. And so, Phyllis, you're right. He came into a being, not as God, but as who? As, as Jesus, as a human being. That's a person. 
of Jesus Christ. Now, we spoke about it. We looked at his Godhood several weeks ago. But we know that his pre-existence is clear from his Godhood. How long has God been around? Forever, okay. Uh, let's go to, uh, you know, remember, at, because he is God, he's eternal, he's immutable. So he's always existed. There was never a time when Christ was not. Again, let's go to John chapter 1, verse 1. Thank you. Um, first of all, we know God's Word is inspired, all right? Uh, John spent uh, at least three and a half years with Jesus during his ministry, uh, a very devout follower of Christ. But I find it kind of interesting as John is penning his gospel, and I realize he's working under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but what's the first thing John clears up about Christ? Has always been. Who he is? He's God. In the beginning, he was with God. Not only was he with God, he was God. And so John clears that up. So we see it even in the New Testament. He's always been. He's part of the Godhead. We mentioned last week, it's also apparent in the Old Testament. And uh, we won't spend a lot of time there tonight. We did it last week. But his pre-existence, we see it in the Old Testament by two different ways. Uh, theophany or Christophany. And, and basically, uh, when we talk about a theophany, it's an appearance of God in some form in the Old Testament. A Christophany would be an appearance of Christ in the Old uh, Testament. Now remember, the Bible says that no one has ever seen God at any time, not in his fullness and lived anyway. And so we can't see himself. And so we have to ascribe all visible appearances of God, either in human or angelic form, to the Son of God manifesting himself before he became flesh. Now, we're not going to do a lot of research tonight on that, but we looked at a couple of Christophanies last week. And by the way, there are more than three or four. Uh, one was in Judges 13, verse 15, uh, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah and his wife. We find another one in Zechariah chapter 3. Uh, this is after the Babylonian captivity. They are now back in their homeland. And they begin to rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem. And this is another Joshua, uh, different from the time of Moses' time. But this particular Joshua was a high priest. And in chapter 3, we see him standing before the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate appearance of uh, Jesus Christ. And then in Exodus chapter 3, verse 16, uh, we see God appearing to Moses. So there we have a theophany, the appearance of God in some type of visible form in the Old Testament. Now, again, these are not the only ones. There are several others uh, in the Old Testament. But nonetheless, uh, Christ has always been. He has always existed. The New Testament affirms it, and even the Old Testament affirms it. And so uh, he didn't come to existence. Uh, on the day he was born, he came into flesh on that day. So we're talking about God incarnate, the man Christ Jesus. Now remember, one person, two natures, godly and human, okay? We don't want to miss that. Now, we're not going to go back there tonight, but back in Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15, God gives a, uh, an early promise, an ancient promise of Redeemer. He says to Satan, you're going to bruise his heel, 
but he will bruise your head. And he says to Mary and to Adam as well, it'll be of the seed of the woman. We'll talk more about that a little later on. And then in chapter 12 of Genesis verse, verse 3, uh, God has called Abraham, believe his family, to go to a place where you'll show him later on. But in that chapter of chapter 12 of Genesis verse 3, God repeats that same promise. He is going to bless all nations through Abraham, but understand through his seed, singular, and that seed would be Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we have to understand something. Christ has always existed. God, he's always been a God, been with God, was God. So the purpose of his coming was the redemption of his people. And that is all of those who would ever believe in him. He came into our world to redeem us. And the fulfillment of that promise and those prophecies came when the angel Gabriel came to Mary and he announced to her she would give birth to the Christ child. Now, I do want to remind you, uh, you know, there are several uh, tenets of the faith that we cannot uh, waver on. We must not waver on. And one of them is the doctrine of the virgin birth. And again, what does the word doctrine mean? Teaching, okay? It's a teaching of the virgin birth. And you, you, I think you probably already know this, but this teaching, this doctrine has been attacked by critics not only outside the church, but even inside the church, and by the way, I use that term church loosely when I find somebody attacking the doctrine of the virgin birth, but nonetheless, just so you understand. And, and sometimes, uh, those who, criti- who are critics of the doctrine of the, of the virgin birth, they're going to try to suggest to us that the word that's translated virgin in the Bible can mean something other than a virgin. Now, I will give them that credit, okay? Because in the scriptures, uh, in the Hebrew and the Greek as well, uh, the term for virgin can either mean a virgin, like we think about that, or simply a young, unmarried woman. All right? It could go either way. So uh, the context of what you're reading uh, would, you know, give the meaning of how that word is used. So those who would say, well, Mary probably wasn't a virgin in the sense we think of, I think they're wrong. Go to Luke chapter 1, verse 34. Okay. Uh, Phyllis, I know you know that story. Okay. The angel said to Mary, you're going to have a baby. And so Mary says, what? What do you mean? How, how can it be? Yeah. I've never had an intimate relationship. Now, by the way, remember something, folks. She's not standing in a court of law trying to defend herself. Right? Yeah, she's simply confused. How could this be? So my question would be, that being said, her confusion, so when's the last time that ever happened? It never did. And I want to suggest it never will. So she is absolutely dumbfounded. Now, by the way, other than God, and probably the angel here, who's the only one who knew the truth about that? Mary, right? Yeah, Mary. She knew the truth. And so, I I don't know about you, but I believe what Mary said, her word, without a doubt, (laughs) 
She makes it plain. I am a virgin in the truest sense. Not only have I never been married, I've never had an intimate relation with a man. And so, Phyllis, I like what you said. Her question was, how can this be? From a human standpoint, what's the answer to that? It can't be. It can't be. So it's gonna, if it's gonna take place, it would have to be a miracle of God. Now, I don't know that Mary thought that, but I believe she might have. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, if I'm Mary Lord, if you must know something I don't know. You know, uh, whatever. But it had to be a miracle of God. So the incarnation, including the birth of our Savior, was without a doubt a miracle of God. Uh, go to verse 35. We were in Luke 1 a moment ago. Thank you, Phyllis. Now, I find it kind of interesting. The angel doesn't wait long. What was Mary's question? Yeah. How can it be? And so the Spirit of God tells her. The angel of the Lord tells her. Or the angel says, Gabriel says to her, here's how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. The power of God is going to overshadow you. And because of that, the holy thing which is born to you is going to be called the Son of God. The miracle of the virgin birth, the person of Christ. No one like him. He's the only way. He said that. Virgin born. It's interesting how the Apostle Paul, John the Apostle as well, I believe, I believe gave some very profound comments on the mystery of the incarnation itself. First Timothy chapter three, look at verse sixteen. Wow. Absolutely, yeah. Do you think Paul was still amazed at this? Yes. Now I've got a couple more comments I'll make on this in a moment. But let's see what John said in John 1, verses 14 through 18. Thank you, Phyllis. Now, remember, we read John 1-1 a moment ago. 
And John said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now in verse 14, he says, that Word, what happened to it? It became flesh, and it dwelt among us. Now it's interesting. <coughs> we read First Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 a moment ago. And in that verse, Paul is speaking about the mystery of godliness. And what's interesting, Paul has spent a lifetime trying to figure out how to live a godly life. And so Paul is basically saying here in verse 16 of 1 Timothy 3, he said, the secret of godly living is found in Christ. That's the secret of it. But, he said, it's found in Christ, who was God lived out in the flesh. Now, by the way, for the ungodly, there is no answer. And I'm going to tell you, folks, they will never find the answer until they find Christ. (laughs) Because Christ is shrouded in a mystery. But to the godly... Christ is a mystery revealed. And then Paul, in the same verse, goes farther, if you will, and describes this mystery in detail. He says, God was manifested in the flesh. means we saw it in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit. He was seen of angels. He was preached on the Gentiles, believed on in this world, and received up to glory. So, Paul says, God was manifest in the flesh. How did that take place? Through who? Through Christ. It was Christ who revealed God in the flesh. It was Christ who was justified in the Spirit, seen to the angels. It was Christ that Paul was preaching to the Gentiles. It's Christ who was believed on, and it's Christ who was received up to glory. And so I look at this verse, and I, I see a twofold, I think, important thing we need to point out here. The mystery of godliness is, in fact, in Christ, who indeed was God of the flesh. But I think it's also a mystery. How the holy, immutable, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God can become a man. Now, you need to remember something, folks. In almost every case, when the Bible speaks of a mystery, it's speaking of something once not known, but now known. We know it through the person of Christ. So how could it happen? How could it be? Well, the answer to that question is found in what we read earlier in Luke's Gospel. (laughs) And what's interesting is this. I think the words to Mary from Gabriel were a mystery to her. But were they true? Yes, it was true. 
So even though we have an inability to fully understand the incarnation, it doesn't change the fact of it any more than our inability to fully fathom all the forces of life in the universe. Because we don't understand it, it doesn't change it. So it's interesting, the Scriptures certainly protect the doctrine of the Incarnation. And in fact, you'll find some of the strongest words in the New Testament protecting the doctrine, their teaching of the Incarnation. Now again, I mentioned earlier, there are only, uh, there are, there are some bedrock foundational truths for Christianity. And there are others that a person can be mistaken about and still be a Christian. But if someone is mistaken about the doctrine of the virgin birth, if they miss it in that area, that tells me their profession is false. They have not been saved. Because show me a person that does not believe in Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, I'll show you a person that is not a Christian. You must believe the doctrine of the virgin birth of the incarnation. Go to 1 John chapter 4, look at verses 2 and 3. Thank you, Dan. Now, let me remind you, uh, there was some false teaching going on in the church, in the, in the, in the New Testament church, uh, that God really didn't become flesh. Uh, that he couldn't become flesh because to become flesh was sinful, and so therefore he could not. And, of course, I think it was John who also tells us we need to try the spirits to see whether or not that be of God. And so John is very clear here. He said, we have to know, here's how you know. If anybody, any uh, spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ did come in the flesh, we know that's of God. But if they don't, if any spirit, any teacher, any preacher says that Christ did not come in the flesh, that didn't come from God. He is an Antichrist. Very, very, very stern words. Second John chapter 1, look at verses 7 through 11. Thank you. 
Was John beating around the bush here? No. Now, by the way, certainly, while our focus is on the incarnation, we have to be careful, folks. You know, we live in a, in a world of tolerance, or we're supposed to be tolerant. And I want to tell you, it's invaded the church. There are some things that we think I can't stand for. There, there has to be distinctives. And nothing greater than the incarnation of Christ. There are others. Not the only one, but it's one of the, one of the big ones. And John says, if they come to your house, first of all, don't let them in. Don't let them in. My doorbell rang today, and that's unusual. During the day, we hardly ever get any, any visitors. And usually when they come, they come for a reason because we live so far off the road. Our house is not easily visible. You can see it, but you have to look for it from the road. And my first thought, Jehovah Witness. And I was excited because I love to talk with them. Now, I don't give them Godspeed, but I share the gospel with them. Well, it wasn't Jehovah Witness. It was somebody looking for somebody else. thought they had the right house. Uh, but here's the thing, folks. We cannot condone what they teach. We have to stand for the truth of God's Word. And John says, don't even bid them Godspeed. Because if you do, you're partaking in their evil. So John doesn't mince words. Go to Jude, chapter 1. There's only one chapter, verse 3 and 4. Thank you, Dan. Uh, I love the, the uh, epistle of Jude. He had his heartbeat was to begin writing about the common salvation, but he realized there was something more important. He needed to instruct those he was writing to to earnestly contend for the faith. Because, as J. Vernon McGee said, there were some creeps in the church. <laughs> they crept in, okay? And uh, Jude talks about this, these men who'd come in, these false teachers, how they had turned the grace of God into uh, lasciviousness, you know, ungodly living. But he also said they denied the only Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So whenever we discuss and we consider the humanity of Christ, uh, the incarnate God-man, he was real humanity. Don't miss that. Real humanity. He was not a phantom. He was not a figment of imagination. He was real humanity. He was not a new type of being. In fact, as uh, the old statement of faith used to say, he was very God of very God. But he was also fully and completely man as well. The God-man. So my question would be tonight, 
we're claiming him to be God and, and man. Did Jesus go through the common experiences of manhood? Yes. What are some of the ways? <laughs> Did he get thirsty? Yeah. Did he get weary? He worked as a carpenter with his dad for several years. And yeah, all those things. Every one of those things. Um, he suffered discomfort like we do. He had pain. He had grief. Was he ever tempted? Amen. We know at least for 40 days, right? There with Satan for sure, but other times as well. <laughs> and so, how did he die? Yeah, like a common criminal. Yeah, did like a man. So he was in every way a man. Now again, one of the false teachings that went around in the early church and still somewhat today, a lot of people would try to tell us that, well, uh, for Christ to really be fully man, surely it was necessary that he had a sin nature and be innately sinful himself. Is that true? No. That is not the case at all. Now keep in mind, if Adam is your descendant, or my descendant, how many know we have a sin nature? Yeah. But remember that sin nature was not part of the original makeup of man. God did not create the sin nature. Now, it did come, but God didn't create it. 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verses 45 through 49. Thank you, Phyllis. Paul does an excellent job bringing out a point here. He reminds us that God made the first man, Adam, a living soul. But God also made the last man, Adam, a life-giving spirit. Now remember, our sinfulness... was a result of the sin of Adam. The result of the one who was a representative of the human race. The first man, Adam. And the Bible calls him Adam. So we are born simple. Not because Adam was made simple, but because he became sinful. So therefore, everyone born after him, from the seed of Adam, were born 
Simple. But we need to remember, Jesus was not the son of Adam. He was the second man, Adam. Where Adam failed, Christ did what? He succeeded. And because of the virgin birth, and we referenced Genesis chapter 3 earlier when we talked about the ancient promise of a redeemer. But we find out that this redeemer would be the seed of the woman. And so therefore, Christ had no human father. The Spirit of God moved upon Mary. And because he had no human father, the sin of Adam and Adam's sin nature was not passed onto him. So my question is, when Christ lived on this world, how much, how much sin did he commit? None. He lived a sinless life. He had no sin, he knew no sin, and he did no sin, ever. But when we think of this mystery of the faith, the beauty of that is that this perfect God-man, the one who never sinned, the one who knew no sin, the Bible said became what for us? He became sin for us. And he paid the penalty for us. Hebrews 4. Look at verses 14 and 15. So what did Christ go through? Yeah, except what? Yeah, no sin. Without sin. So I say it again, when we speak about the person of Christ, we're on holy ground. No one like him. Judges 13, look at verse 18. And by the way, uh, we referred to this last week. This is when the angel Lord visited with Manoah, uh, Samson's father and mother. Okay, we'll come back and make a comment on that in a moment. Hebrews 1, 4. I'm sorry, Hebrews 1, 6. I can't read my writing here. The angels are to do what? Worship him. John 17, verse 3. John 17, verse 3. And this is life eternal. 
that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. 1 John chapter 2, verse 23. Is John clear there? Absolutely. Matthew chapter 16, verse 17. Matthew 16, verse 17. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father... Which is in heaven. What's the only way to know it? Through God revealing it. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3. Who is the whom? Jesus Christ. Back to John 17 verse 24. Amen. We've taken quite a few verses on Christ here. And it's interesting when the angel of the Lord met with Manoah and his wife. And Manoah asked the angel, what is your name? Now, the King James, the angel said, my name is secret. But it literally means my name is too wonderful for you to understand. It's too wonderful for you to understand. We read in Hebrews just a moment ago. Even the angels of God are commanded to worship who? Jesus Christ. In fact, there is the Bible is very clear. There's no, no salvation apart from knowing Christ. John reminds us in his epistles, those who would deny the Son, S-O-N, do not have the Father. In fact, Jesus told Peter, you're blessed, Peter, son of John. You're blessed. Because only those to whom the Spirit of truth communicates who I am can understand that. You're blessed, Simon. And then we're told, knowing him, will lead us in the only path of wisdom and joy. Because Paul reminded that in him, in Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. And I want to tell you then, today, folks, we will only know them all when we are taken to be where he is. And behold his glory for eternity. I often kid with people about things we discuss. 
and debates about the scriptures, who's right and who's wrong here. And I often tell people, we'll talk about that in heaven. No, we won't. We're going to spend an eternity getting to know him better in his fullness. And that's why we ought to be ever increasing in our knowledge, in our apprehension of the truth concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul wrote, we read earlier, great is the mystery of godliness. The fact that God was indeed manifest in the flesh. we got a minute or two left here. Would somebody please explain to me the wondrous, unique person of Christ? Yeah, we can't. It simply cannot be done. It is beyond words. We can't even comprehend it. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. So true, Phyllis. We can't even comprehend the simple things. Matthew 11, verse 27. Wow. Yeah. There's no way the finite mind can totally comprehend Christ. The person of Christ. Um, Jesus, no man knows the Father. Except the Son. And no man knows the Son. But the Father. Second Peter 3.18 One more word. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dan. So, we may never comprehend the fullness of Christ, His majesty. But my friend, it's a privilege. It is our privilege and our duty to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That ought to be the desire of our hearts. And my prayer would be that we would never, ever lose that desire, continually growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, this is far more than head knowledge. We're talking about experiencing Him in our lives. Experiencing the fullness of Christ in our lives. And because we are children of God, our duty, our obligation, is to hold up the person of the God-man just as the Scriptures reveal Him. Fully God and fully man. But also, we've got to warn those without Christ and even those who would bring about false teaching that would cloud His glory. May I say, oh, what a Savior. Let's stop there for tonight. We're going to pick it up next week. And we're going to look some things about the one... Born in Bethlehem's manger, okay? So we'll stop there for tonight.
Let's take a few moments tonight and let's go to the Lord in prayer. I uh, spoke with Brother Paul Snodgrass uh, this evening before we came to church. And Naomi's surgery went well, but she's still not doing real well. She is suffering with uh, her lungs are filled with pneumonia. So she's still not able to breathe on her own. So she's still on a breathing tube. Uh, Paul said when they got to today, uh, she began to be uh, very restless. Again, it wasn't because they showed up. It was just she didn't know they were there. Uh, but they had to increase her, her sedation a little bit more. Uh, so when they left, she was calm. But uh, pray for that situation. Uh, Paul's word to me, he said, Brother Allen, it just doesn't look good. Uh, we know that God is a miracle-working God, but we also know, in fact, Brother Paul and I spoke the other day at the hospital uh, privately, and he said, Brother Allen, I know it's in God's hands. And, uh, but it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It surely it does. So pray, uh, pray for Naomi, uh, pray for Brother Paul, and pray for the family as well. Uh, Rondi, have you heard him update on Jane today by any chance? Okay. Again, she took a turn for the worst last night, and she was unresponsive, and I suppose we're getting ready to call in hospital care if we haven't verified. But pray for Jane, uh, but also pray for Rhonda's dad. Um, well, I hurt for him too as well, okay? So pray for the family. Pray that God would touch. Pray for Jane's family as well. Uh, anybody else before we pray tonight? Anyone else before we pray? Don't forget about Sister Terry. Uh, also, uh, Sister Kathy, pray for her. Uh, continue to pray for Brother Jordan's mother. I did pray for, uh, not pray, speak with him today for a little while. And uh, uh, she is out of the hospital, uh, but they're trying to get the medications correct and, and not just get them correct, but that she would continue taking them correctly. Uh, a lot of things going on there. And uh, Jordan, is very, Jordan is very concerned, not, not sure what to do next. Uh, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, the problem is they, they live over in Westchester. His mother lives here in Milford. And uh, Jordan and his wife, Rhonda, are mainly the main caretakers there. And, you know, they've got to travel back and forth several times a week to check on his mother. A lot of things going on. Uh, so pray for them. Uh, pray that God would give them direction of what maybe the next step they need to take, uh, but also pray for his mother. God can do miracles there as well. So pray for Jordan, his family, and especially uh, for his mother. Uh, let's see. Am I... Yes, Diane? What do you think about that? <laughs> now, again, I'm kind of being lighthearted here, but when I went to see her at the hospital today, she said, I think I'm going to therapy today. I said, oh, you are? She said, well, that's my thought. <laughs> and let's pray that it will. And, and again, we appreciate that because we're glad to hear she is doing well because she did have quite extensive surgery. Let's pray for her as well. Somebody else we pray today. Yes, Bill?
Let's pray for those situations. We know God is in control. Also, my uh, Pam talked to my sister uh, today, and uh, or yesterday, I guess it was, and uh, they live next in any area where Ken Holland lives, and they did air care him to Vanderbilt last week. Uh, they have discovered it wasn't a stroke. He's had a tumor <coughs> behind his ear for some time. They think that might be the situation. So we're just really waiting to see what they're going to do. I think he's doing some better, but continue to pray for Ken Holland. Uh, also, I spoke with Gary Beaker today. He's the one that tunes our pianist here at the church. And uh, anyway, uh, he is dealing with, he's in uh, congestive heart failure, stage two. So pray for him. Uh, pray that God's will will be done in his life. And I know that God is able to do all things. So, yes? Oh, my goodness. I didn't hear that. That's true. You know, and it's too common that uh, places that their children should be safe being killed for children. Absolutely, and that's not happening. Pray for our, our, our children that we see in schools. So much happens. Yes, indeed. And you know, the sad thing is that's what happens when you devalue life. It really is. Pray for our children. Pray for those in government authority. And I don't need to tell you, our government is in a mess. Let's pray. Ruby? What's on his hand? Hmm. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, I heard you kind of stumbled a little bit this week on the porch. Are you okay? Stumbled on the porch, is that when you were? Oh, so he must hit you in the head then. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you're okay. I didn't even, but do pray for that. Uh, also, Cooper, uh, I was early in this week or in the end of the last, he pulled his knee out of socket. And uh, it, they were, of course, they were playing around at school. It just happened the, uh, uh, the team trainer for the sports team was there. He was able to put it back in place, and they, they gave him a brace, or they brought him a brace to wear, but it came out again today, and so I guess we're going to schedule an MRI, so pray for him. Now, uh, according to Jesse, you know, he's in a little bit of pain. Uh, Colton said he's faking it. So that's little brother's take on him, okay? But I, I know he's not, so let's just pray that they'll be able to take care of that. So pray, uh, pray for Cooper. Somebody else will we pray today. Folks, thank you so much for coming out. I am so thankful that you uh, love God's Word enough to come out for a Bible study. Uh, and I, I'm thankful that you, you care about the Lord and you walk with Him. Let's all stand if you would, please. Uh, Brother Charlie Glover, would you lead us in prayer, please?